Train station 12, string guitar, flute beside my backpack. Close friends, we've come far to be here all alone on this concrete curb. Money's gone, love's past, future dangling telephone. Welcome to episode 007 of the History of American Zen podcast. And this is me, the Hippie Coyote, one of my alternate identities. Um, I got this name in 1984, 83, 84, or earlier than that, 82. It was when I was living across from the um, Veterans Cemetery, Veterans Cemetery in Westwood, Los Angeles, near the next to the 405 freeway, and uh, <clears throat> that's when I got my name. Was shortly after that, or during that time. But uh, no, actually, I take that back. No, it wasn't even then. That inspired the story. I wrote this. I had to. I wrote the rock opera, but I didn't start performing it when I was living there. It wasn't until I was actually. Maybe I was living with Jennifer Olds in Brentwood, and because we, we were performing the rock opera. 
And it was called Coyote in a Graveyard. And it was based on dedicating it to a coyote that was in that graveyard uh, who inspired me. And when we were performing that rock opera, that's when I got the name Coyote because people just, I, they thought of me as the coyote in the graveyard. I was the singer and the songwriter of that thing and performing it. And so I became the coyote. So anyway, I've been the coyote since then. So that was probably about 1984. And let's see. So the, the introductory song was, was, well, I haven't put it on there yet, but it should have been Peace of Mind Number 2, which is the first song on the first album by American Zen. Now, I probably told the story already <clears throat> about the eight levels of American Zen, and I'm going to focus on just telling the first level for a little while, and we'll get through all the songs, and I'll tell that story, and then we'll move on to the Christ Killer album, and I'll tell the stories about that. Then we'll move on to the level three, which is when I actually had an affair, not a very short-lived affair for how many months. But um, yeah, other than that, that was the only other girl I slept with from between 1989 and now. <laughs> other than my ex-wife, Michelle, that was the only sexual relationship I had during all these decades, three, 30 years. I had a, a fling, an affair, and that was it. And... Um, yeah, no, no, no girlfriends even in the last ten years, and uh, so anyway, yeah, because to me it's a marriage, you know, and and to me I don't want a girlfriend unless she's going to really boost my career because I really don't have time to waste just having sex and you know spending money on a girl that is going to dump me and you know I got plenty of romantic breakup songs I don't need any more heartbreaks I don't even need to fall in love I got plenty of songs. And in fact, I get crushes on girls. I've written in the last decade, maybe another dozen songs to basic girls that I had crushes on, but I never slept with. So I can still get inspired and, and, and romantically motivated to still write a love song <laughs> without having a girlfriend even. But anyway, uh, the history of American Zen. Uh, for today, I'm going to mention on the Level 1 album, uh, talk about Rory G. Now, this is, I became all four band members to make this album. I didn't think it was going to stick. I thought I was just kind of doing it. And then other people were going to come in and I'd say, well, you just call yourself Rory G. And then if I lost them and they didn't make it for more than a couple of years, kind of like a girlfriend, you replace them. I, I thought, well, I'll find somebody else and he could still be Rory G. So I'll just kind of keep hiring musicians to fill in those blanks. And it ended up always being me. And so I always ended up being Rory G. And the reason I, I named, came up with the name Rory G, it's based on Rory Gallagher, who was one of my heroes. In fact, it was after the, a couple years later, after the band was formed, I was contacted by uh, Rory Gallagher's brother, Donald. And he had passed away and they were making a tribute album to him. And somehow, based on something I had said somewhere or published somewhere, they knew that I had was a Rory Gallagher fan. I don't know. I forget how they figured that out. But um, they uh, contacted me and asked if I had a Rory Gallagher song. Or maybe they knew I'd done Laundromat. Maybe somehow, somewhere, I'd have published that or something. Really. I don't know. But anyway, they contacted me and I said, yeah, I've got this song Laundromat, which was written by Rory Gallagher that I'd recorded at Bonita Studio back in the 70s. Back like, um, what, 74 or 75 uh, with some session players. And so I had that song, <clears throat> um, Laundromat, the, one of the few cover songs I've ever recorded. And so they put that on that tribute album to Rory Gallagher. So if you can ever find that album, that tribute to Rory Gallagher, whenever he, he actually passed away, um, gosh, when I don't even remember what year it was. Maybe it was after I'd got, I didn't get on the internet till about 1999. Was it after that? 
So then they might have been able to find me on, you know, notice that on the internet. But anyway, I'm, I've got a um, that song, Laundromat, on his tribute album to Rory Gallagher by me, Richard. Well, it's by him, performed by me, Richard Del Connor. I probably called myself The Rich. Um, that was basically, well, actually, it was called Lotus, uh, the, band, the band back then. Well, maybe I should put that song on here. Um, should I do that for fun? Well, I've got another. If you go to the Shaolin Records podcast, I'm doing all kinds of old recordings and stuff like that. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to remember to unearth these recordings and put them. It'll be on the Shaolin Records podcast. So go look for that. And then I'll have Laundromat on there at some time. Um, but let's see. In terms of the history of American Zen, Rory G is my basically kind of inspired by Rory Gallagher. I must, I, I think seven times I saw him in concert and I would always be right there at the edge of the stage. You know, there would be, you know, I'd have my, I'd be, have my elbows up on the stage, you know, standing on the ground watching him and, and being, I, I just loved him. I thought he was, he was also good looking, a little, looks a little bit like me and had long hair like I wanted to have, or I maybe did have actually during the 70s. But when I first started seeing him, maybe I didn't have long hair, but, um, or at least I was trying to grow it, but couldn't grow it when I lived with my parents. So let's see. I, so yeah, so the first times I saw him, I was probably living with my parents in the 60s. And at that time, I couldn't have hair over my ears. So anyway, I, I loved his hair and I, I thought he was handsome and he was personable and he was a really cool guitar player. And I loved the blues and he played a really rocking heart, you know, kind of a hard rock version of the blues. And he also played traditional blues and slide guitar. So he was a real role model for me. And even his slide guitar playing, um, I, I, he he definitely inspired me as a slide guitar player also. So on the Rory on the American Zen albums, Rory G is the lead guitar player and the slide guitar player. And he also plays ukulele. And I think uh, Rory G played mandolin, but I don't play mandolin, but I did play Rory G on my albums play some ukulele. So you can see how he's kind of a knockoff or not a knockoff, but he's he's definitely inspired by Rory Gallagher. And uh, uh, on the actual albums, Rory G is playing my guitar. Well, I've only got, I have two electric guitars. When Rory G plays slide guitar, he plays the Pleasant, a Japanese Pleasant, a very rare guitar. It was made by a guitar builder in Japan, and he was making the guitars for Harmony Ears, you know, one of the Sears, you know, one of those companies, and he was building their guitars. They'd have several people, and they'd give them the designs, and they, these guitar makers, you know, for really cheap would, you know, mass produce these guitars. And there might be, there was more than one making them for Sears and Harmony or whoever companies existed back then in the 60s. But this guy had his own custom line called Pleasant, which never took off. And I've got one of those rare guitars. It was actually brought back from Japan by a, a client. My dad was an insurance salesman. And so it's probably an army guy or military guy. And uh, my dad's, I I think that's where I got it from. My dad got it from somebody who came back from Japan with this guitar. So that's how I got that Pleasant. And so, because um, it was never available in the United States. So I've got this Pleasant guitar, and that's what I use for slide. Um, and I raise the action up. Um, it's not the best built guitar ever made, but it's got great sound, and I love the pickups in it. They just have a great sound, and it looks really neat, and uh, so I love it. And I put really nice tuning pegs on it. It had really cheap tuning pegs on it, so I think I put Showlers. It's the most expensive ones you can get. And, and I put really nice tuning pegs on it. Um, I don't know if I changed the bridge or not. I might even put a different bridge on it. I have to look at it and see. I haven't seen it in a couple of years. <laughs> Actually, a whole bunch of years, you know, because I had it in storage. And then I've got it here, and I haven't taken it out of the guitar case since I've been here. I haven't had a reason to. 
And, uh, but anyway, I raised the action up and then I put heavier gauge strings on it. So for slide guitar, it actually, where the strings resonate and sustain longer. Whereas on my Stratocaster, I use thinner strings so I can bend them easier. And so the, uh, yeah, the, so that's Rory G. He, and my, the Stratocaster I've got is a 1984, one of the, maybe the only guitar I brought, I purchased brand new. I was working as a union carpenter and I had lots of money at the time. And so I, I went in there and bought the, what I thought was the nicest, best guitar I could find. And it had a really nice locking tremolo uh, on it. I thought it was, they told me when they gave, they sold it to me, they lied to me. They told me it was the Floyd Rose tremolo, but I don't think it actually was. Because uh, they said, they, he said that, I remember he said that, but it's not. I looked it up online and they call it the Japanese model, whatever it was. It was the Japanese version of like the Floyd Rose. But it's a really nice, uh, really nice unit and it really worked well. Uh, but when you break a string... And it's got, you know, the, the bridge is held by springs that re changes the tension and the strings would go out of tune, you know, when I break a strings and I break lots of strings. So it became kind of like I decided I didn't need the whammy bar. <clears throat> On the Coyote in a Graveyard album, I was still using it as a whammy bar for a few years. And so you'll actually hear me using it as a, as a vibrato whammy bar. And uh, But after that, I actually changed it. What I did was I went to a guitar maker. He was the guy who built the good basses. He was a um, the bass tech for one of the big companies. I could picture it, but I don't want to say the name. Steinberg Basses, I think. So whoever he was in Hollywood, he had a shop and he was making lots of money. He only worked for the stars and me. I was one of the one of the only people who wasn't a real famous star or that, you know, was his client. And he did a bunch of work uh, for me on all my guitars and, and stuff. And it was really, he was really ingenious. He made some modifications and sold me some special parts that he'd collected, you know, that did some really neat things. In fact, he, we have, I have one on this, uh, on my Strat. So what we did was we, we decided to make it so that it wasn't a, uh, a whammy bar anymore. And we just kind of like put all this tension on it. So now the bridge or the, the, the bridge is sitting on this big, huge block that goes into the middle of the guitar and then it's got springs on it. And so what we did was we just, instead of having it floating with the springs, we just secured it. So it's, it's totally locked into the body of the guitar, which means that it resonates and has more of a, a, a unique sound than it would if it was just floating. The bridge was floating in the air on these springs. Now the bridge is actually totally pushed into the guitar wood body. So it vibrates into the guitar body more than it ever would have. So I totally changed the sound of the guitar, which I think was an improvement. I really like it. Gives it, I think, more sustain. And so uh, that, that changed the sound. And so that's what that bridge is. It's totally locked in, so it can't be used as a whammy bar anymore. And what else did I do to custom? Oh, and then he did something really neat. I've got a reverse taper pot. I think that's what they call it. Pot is short for potentiometer. And it's a total, we took off, because I don't really use the tone controls much. I got one regular tone control, so I can make my guitar sound like Mick Ronson did. He would cut off the high end and give it kind of a mid-range. But I, turned, I only found out recently that he didn't do it with his, uh, the pot on the guitar. He did it with the uh, wah-wah pedal. He would use the wah-wah pedal. And I, I don't really like the intermediate positions, but he would find one of the intermediate positions where it would cut off the high frequencies, because it goes, wow. So in that middle position, wow, you know, where it was like sounded mid-rangey, that's how Mick Ronson got a lot of his guitar sound. And I didn't know that till about a year ago, watching videos of him online. And, but anyway, I would get the Mick Ronson sound by just rolling off some of the high end on my guitar. But that gave me another, I had another pot that uh, um, I could use. 
And I didn't really want to use that as, in the same way. And I had a volume control, and that I only needed one volume control, whether I was using one or two pickups or three pickups. And so I, uh, I had one volume. I got the regular pot, and then the third knob we, we put on there, it has a reverse taper. And so I could get a real Jimi Hendrix-type sound. And so it was kind of a, a bass boost. It would kind of like, I don't know how to explain what it does. I used to know how, it, I never explained it to anybody because it was kind of a secret thing. But uh, that's the thing I used to get a really nice tone out of my guitar. My secret, that's my secret weapon on that Stratocaster is that knob. And it, it kind of like creates a bass boost or cuts out, it cuts out the mid-range, I think is what it does. So it, it actually exaggerates the high end and the low end without the mid-range. So it's kind of like, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of what it is. Whatever it is, there's a custom pot that he put in there and I love that dang thing. And I, I that would be, if I lost a guitar, that'd be one of my biggest heartbreaks would be losing that potentiometer that gives me my unique sound. So anyway, that's the, uh, the Stratocaster I always use. And so I only have the two electric guitars, the Pleasant and the Stratocaster, and so that's how I get my stuff. Now, I've never, I do not have any distortion pedals. I sold them all. I used to use the uh, Big Muff. I had it back in the 60s, a collector's item, probably worth a lot of money now. But um, I had a Big Muff, and I decided I didn't really want to use it anymore. I, I felt like it was... And, and I regret that because now I'm listening to a bunch of Blue Cheer and Hendrix and realizing, wow, if I really wanted that feedback and distortion, I'd have to get that big muff back. And uh, that big muff was awesome. But at one point I decided, no, if I'm going to do any distortion, I'm going to get it out of my amplifier. So I have a Marshall 50-watt um, uh, Mark II uh, 50-watt combo amplifier. Beautiful amp with Celestian speakers in it. And uh, what I do is I turn the amp up enough to where I get a really nice sound and really sustain, and then I turn my guitar down and I play. So now it's like it gets a, a warm kind of little bit of not, not the full distortion out of the amplifier. And then when I play a solo, I just crank the knob, all the, my volume all the way up, and then I can do it. Or I flip over to my treble pickup, the one closest to my uh, bridge, and that gives me the really biting sound. Otherwise, I tend to like the front pickup all the way you know, towards the front of the neck. That's my favorite pickup to normally play with. And then I can adjust the, like I said, the pots, and that's how I get most of my sounds. And then only sometimes do I click it all the way to the treble pickup, and I don't use the middle pickup. I've experimented, and I've never really found much reason to use that middle one. It, it just never really did much for me. Um, sometimes if I wanted to create, there's a, I've got this toggle switch, and the toggle switch has five positions. It's either the front, uh, the, the neck pickup, and then a mixture of the neck in the middle, and then the middle, and then a mixture of the middle and the um, bridge pickup and then the bridge. But I don't really like the intermediate positions. Hendrix kind of liked them because when you got all that distortion, it, it really creates a lot of phasing and so it, it makes the guitar sound cleaner. So if you're using a lot of distortion, it's really good. But for me, those intermediate positions, I rarely use them. I mean, once in a while, maybe only about one out of 20 songs might have the intermediate position for some reason, you know, just to be unique or different. But normally I didn't use those too much. Um... Let's see. So anyway, there's the Rory G story. 
Uh, what else am I going to tell you? Um, the Coyote Tales, uh, Tales of Me, the Coyote. Remember, I told you I got it by performing that rock opera. If you look at the sepia tone pictures, if you see those on the uh, internet, any of the ones where I'm performing live with my Rickenbacker on stage with the plush amp in the background, the big black tuck and roll amplifier, those were Coyote in a graveyard performances, the rock opera. And uh, at that time, when I became a photographer, a year or so later, it was actually after that, uh, I became a photographer and I, I was shooting for bands. It actually started by shooting for some of my, for one of my students, uh, Sam Persons, because I was a photographer at UCLA doing movies and music videos, and he wanted me to shoot his band, and so I came and shot him. And then people liked it, and they said, hey, why don't you do this? And then somebody said from one of the magazines, hey, shoot for us. And pretty soon I had this reputation accidentally of becoming a concert photographer. It was just kind of a hobby of mine. I wasn't really seeking a career out of it, but I could have. And so uh, I called myself Rocktography by the Coyote because I had done some tabletop work with some of my photographer friends. I didn't want to do tabletop. I didn't want to shoot hamburgers and things on a table. That's what you call tabletop when you put out products and you do product lighting. Um, one of my friends, the animal, uh, Ed Schultz, he did tabletop. And I did some things, some things with him. And I actually worked with a couple of very famous um people whose names are all I can almost say them um, very very famous uh, cinematographers and sometimes they would do tabletop just to make some money in between movies and because I was working with them in the movies I actually actually hired me for a couple of their tabletop shoots it's more like a production assistant you know because they had all the lighting they had their cameras and they had all this equipment but sometimes they just wanted somebody around who knew photography to help them and do loading the cameras or taking care of certain stuff so I was just kind of a you know like I said an assistant and helped a few of really, really big-time professionals, too, in tabletop photography. But I didn't want to do that. That wasn't the thing that I was really wanted to do. So, um, Rocktography by the Coyote. In fact, I mentioned Screamer magazine. I used to work for Screamer, and they liked me. And uh, they didn't pay me much, and uh, it was mostly for the reputation. I think I only got, like, $50 a shoot. You know, it didn't even cover my expenses, probably. Because by the time you cover the film, and then I got to take it in and get the negatives processed, and then I got to go through the contact sheets, and then I make my orders. My or prints were, like, I don't know, 8 to $12 each. I forget what I was paying, but you know, not cheap. And then like the color photography was 15 to 18 or so, I think, uh, uh, eight by tens. So for me, you know, just getting them printed, but I was shooting all mostly black and white because they were black and white, you know, magazines. And so I would, I enjoy shooting black and white a lot. So, but black and white photography, I barely make any, I don't even think I really made money. If you think of my time and expense and gas and everything, uh, I was losing money, but I enjoyed it. I was just, I was, I enjoyed it. So the fact I was getting published and, and having my name printed and maybe making a few bucks, you know, and then I shot a few bands because some of these bands, they would give me assignments and then the bands would call me up. Hey, I really like you. You want to shoot our next album or shoot some promotional stuff for us? And so I would, and I'd shoot. So maybe another half a dozen, I want to say eight bands probably hired me just because I shot them for the newspapers. So I, I had a whole bunch of this photography going all the time. Maybe only really about three or four magazine shoots. Well, they, they wanted me to do like two a week. So actually, I was sometimes doing a whole bunch. But I, would, I tried to keep it down because I was doing, working in the movies and the special effects too. And then I was performing with my own band. And so I couldn't take a lot of the jobs. I would say, no, I'm booked on that night. But uh, if you figure I was shooting, uh, you know, four magazine shoots a, a month and then a, a couple of band shoots a month, 
And, uh, you know, that, that, that was keeping me, that was busy enough for me, you know, and, and then performing and recording and rehearsing and everything else I was doing. And then sometimes working as a carpenter. So yeah, my schedule was full and then having girlfriends. Sheesh. Okay. So let's see. That was Rocktography by the Coyote. Oh, I'm supposed to read from you to, from the, um, uh, the phase one. This is Utah Phase 1, okay? And I got it printed out. You can buy this online. I got it all marked up here. And, and I guess because I, I did the audiobook. I think I've already recorded the audiobook for this. I'm not sure. I went through all my books and recorded like a dozen of them uh, this last year. Uh, all these audiobooks. Now I got to edit them and make them into professional products. I only have one audiobook that I published, and that's Masonic Kung Fu. Go get that book. The paperback is in Amazon and at Audible. I've got the audiobook. And I've been trying to just market that one and make some money, but I've got a whole bunch more ready to go. Okay, my problem is I tend to just put all this product on the shelf and then nothing sells. So I've actually thought to myself, how can I really market this Masonic Kung Fu? I've spent a little time on it. Built a website for it, zenbuddhistpodcast.com, where I was trying to market it and stuff. But it's not really working that well. But it's something, and it's there, and you can buy them. And maybe someday it'll click and, and everything will happen. Okay, I'm looking at the cover picture, which is a... Um, uh, drawn with um, colored pencils by, um, uh, I had a couple of artists that were uh, working for me, but um, I've got Juan Puga mentioned in here for something. He did my album cover for the uh, Coyote in the Graveyard album, but um, this was done by, here it is, Damien Hunter. Damien Hunter did this. He needs to get some credit for this. So this is motorcycle that I designed, and uh, Damien Hunter kind of helped it. And I can't, uh, <clears throat> I used to have a chopper and uh, <clears throat> a smaller one than this, a <laughs> smaller engine. And uh, so anyway, I, but I designed this with him, and he drew it, and we sketched it. And I said, yeah, that's it, and that's it, and that's it. And finally, we put this together, and this is my design of my chopper this blue chopper I'm writing here. So designed by me and drawn by Damien Hunter on the cover here. And that's Michelle on the back. Uh, so he would have done this in about 1989. And that's uh, Michelle on the back of it with me. And uh, yeah. So, okay. So let's see. I'm going to read the cover. Utah Phase 1. Lyrics and Poetry by the Hippie Coyote. Now, we didn't actually use this. When we drew this, it was actually for the Save the Coyote poster because I wasn't making that much money. It was just kind of a joke because I knew the lady was doing the Save the Coyotes because they were really exterminating a lot of the coyotes around Los Angeles. And so I used to see her all the time because her P.O. box was near mine in Hollywood, and I'd go in there once or twice a week and just seemed like I was always crossing paths with her. Nice lady. And so uh, it was kind of a joke that I was doing. Well, save the coyotes. Well, save the coyote, which was me. And so there's a little billboard behind me that I'm driving past that says, save the coyote. And it's so, and I ended up using this for the Utah Phase 1 book cover, which was a few years later. And it says, Adventures of a Buddhist Hippie in Mormon, Utah. So, yeah, Adventures of a Buddhist Hippie. That's what they used to call me when I was in Utah. In Mormon, Utah. Okay, so let's see. How many pages was I going to read here? Um, uh, 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 uh. One more page here. Okay, it's the copyright page. And uh, I've, I've crossed this off and edited it, so maybe I'll do a different version of it. But it said it's the first book of lyrics and poetry from a couple years of living in Utah. And that's true. I don't know why I've crossed all this stuff out and rewrote it. But... Um, uh, during the first couple years I was there, I wrote 
the first two records. Now, the first record of American Zen, because there's poetry which didn't end up on the album and some that did and then a bunch that was still left over that went into this book. And then there was the songs from level one and that's the album. And I ended up recording and producing it and releasing it and selling it on cassettes to everybody I knew and getting some songs on the radio back in the early 90s. And then by 94, I recorded the second album uh, based on all the poetry and everything and songs I'd written, like I said, maybe a year earlier, 93, 92 and 93. And uh, so this poetry book includes the poetry that's also in the Christ Killer um, series and some of the poetry that was left over from that period of time. So the first few years I was there in Utah. Okay, so that was Utah Phase 1. And this is when I was creating the American Zen level things. So I was first, my first concept, actually, of the American Zen albums were phases. And then it became levels, the Buddhist spiritual levels. So kind of evolving in the, in the concept here. Level 1 equals peace of mind, and level 2 equals Christ killer. And that poetry is, is included in here. And so let me just read from this copyright page, and let's see what it says here. It says, check out the podcast poetry readings from this book at... Well, it has the podcast page there, which is which is doesn't exist now. Um, it's actually I'm back at Libsyn. I had to shut it down because I wasn't making enough money to pay for the podcast host back by by 2010. Uh, but now they'll be at CoyoteRadio.tv, and you'll be able to find them there in the blogs or somewhere. Or I'll have a page. I'll figure that out. But go to Coyote Radio TV. That's where I'm going to kind of like combine everything, so it's it's in one place. The book publisher, oh, it says, if you're more, if you are Mormon, please don't read this book and don't bug me. <laughs> okay, it says, book publisher, Shaolin Communications, which is me, can be found at shaolincommunications.com. The shopping cart for Shaolin Communications is shaolincom.com. So Shaolin, C-O-M dot C-O-M. I thought that would be a little more marketable. So I spent a couple of years fleshing that out after the turn of the century and really, really put a lot of products there and, and really made it into an amazing website. And then I changed web hosts. I had it as a Miva shopping cart. And I spent literally a couple of years building the most amazing shopping cart. And I had a lot of business, a lot of online business during those years. Um, let's see. Publishing, administrated by Shaolin Music, ASCAP, and ShaolinMusic.com. That's the website for there, which I haven't updated in like 15 years. Copyright 2007. Okay, so that's when I made this ebook version. Shaolin Records, all rights reserved. Shaolin Records is a division of Shaolin Communications. And, yeah, the first album that I actually released to Shaolin Records was Temptation. And I was called Richard O'Connor at the time. So it's actually Temptation by Richard O'Connor, and the band is called The Rich, and with the credits on the back of that. Um, let's see. My name, yeah, from my name from 1987 to 2004 was Richard the Coyote O'Connor. I was actually an O'Connor, and by 2004, maybe... Uh, Somewhere around that time, maybe 2007, actually, is when I, I dropped. I think I had already dropped. Yeah, I think I dropped the O about 2007, really. And um, so I used that name for a long time, uh, 20 years or so, Richard O'Connor, Richard the Coyote O'Connor. And uh, for podcasts, MB, MP3, CDs, and DVDs of this book, visit ShaolinRecords.com. So, yeah, there should be, I guess I built a, a page in Shaolin Records where you can actually buy this book. And uh, on that page, then, I'll have the audiobook version or whatever available also. And the official website of American Zen is AmericanZen.org. 
So then, but the not the dot com. I don't have that one. But I got the dot org, americanzen.org. Should have tried a little earlier to get that. I waited too long. Somebody else got it. Eh. The Coyote is an exclusive artist of Shaolin Records. And I happen to own Shaolin Records, too. But I've actually signed and written out a recording contract because the other people that I've signed to Shaolin Records, they have to sign recording contracts. So I've signed all the same recording contracts to my own record label. Publisher is Richard Connor. The editor is Richard Dell Connor. Illustrator... All graphics and photography are by the Hippie Coyote, except the Angel Flyer, which is what we used for our concerts. Uh, that was by Juan Puga, and it's got a big angel on it. And Save the Coyote by Damian Hunter. The cover design is by the Hippie Coyote. And uh, let's see. Uh, notice of rights. All rights reserved. No part of this book may be reproduced or transmitted in any form by any means, electronic, mechanical, photocopying, recording, or otherwise without the prior written permission of the publisher. For information on getting permission for reprints and excerpts, contact publisher at shaolincommunications.com. And I've always tried to keep that, but, you know, I don't actually look in there. I don't think anybody's been asking, but only like once a month that I go in and look at all these different emails I've got. I got most of them forwarded, but some of them, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Uh, the ISBN numbers are here for the hardcover version, which has never been published, but I, I assigned an ISBN. The paperback version, um, which also hasn't been published yet. And the PDF download, which is this thing right here. Um, and then there's also an... I don't think I actually made the e-books and the Kindle versions of this. So these are the only three that I actually made. So the only way you can buy this from me. I don't think I ever made this available at Amazon. First printing of this, besides the photocopied books we made in Utah, um, was this, so the first printing of this was June 16th, 2007. So that was the same year. Later in that year is when I became a Freemason in 2007, and that's when I dropped the O on O'Connor. Well, actually, it must have happened about that time because it says here the publisher is Richard Connor and the editor is Richard Del Connor. So you see, it was in 2007 I dropped the O. Ha, ha, see? So this book was published. It looks like in June. June. I don't think I was actually made a candidate until like September of that year or something, but I'm not sure. Um I'm not sure what the crossover is there. So this is a, the PDF download of Utah Phase 1. May be printed and copied for your personal use. So yeah, you buy the PDF and then you can print it up for your own use. If you want to piss off your Mormon friends by sending them a PDF of this book, please buy another copy first, but don't tell them where you got it from. <laughs> I've been hassled by the Mormons so much. Um, Purchase the PDF download at, ah, this website doesn't even exist. It's autumnflavors.com. Order the book. I took that website and I took all the pages and just kind of shoved it inside one of my other websites. So all the pages are still there, but it's not autumnflavors.com. I made a website for each of the poetry books, uh, Autumn Flavors, Spring Fevers, and Summer Forevers. And uh, decided I was had to, like, cut my costs, you know, on websites. And, and so I... I eliminated a lot of URLs, which unfortunately made these books unpublishable. As soon as I publish a book, and then in an ebook version with links, and then I discontinue the website, and then through their own searching, they realize through their, you know, they test the books or whatever, people might complain. As soon as they find out I got a broken link, they take it off the shelf. And so I've got about half a dozen books that are not published right now just because I've got links in them that are broken links. 
<sighs> so I got to republish the book, you know, re-edit them, take those links out. So that's kind of a shame. I wish a lot of these websites would have panned out better for me. All right, so that's all we're going to do there for today. Uh, what else do I have written here we're supposed to mention? Um, and that's it. Uh, it's it. Well, when I wrote this, when I was living in my car, I was performing a lot of these songs. I had a little um, stereo thing, a uh, JBL tubular speaker thing, which was really nice. And bass comes out the ends of it, and then it had a couple of speakers for stereo, and it was a tube uh, with a little bass on it. So it, it could. But anyway, I, I put that in my car up by my window, and uh, I could play the flute and record that. And I, if you a couple of the first podcasts, that's what I'm doing. I'm using that. Now recently, my car got broken into, and they stole it. So I actually don't even have that little JBL speaker in my car anymore. It got stolen about a month or two ago. So, yeah, I'm in a pretty crap, well, I mean, it can happen in a nice neighborhood too, but, yeah, I'm in a pretty crappy place, and a lot of people have been breaking into things. and made me kind of concerned, and so I have had I took out my windows, and I put slips of wood up in the upper channels of all my windows and uh, made it, well, actually, I couldn't take the windows out. You slide it down, open, you know, totally open and then I put the slits of wood up there and then when you slide the window back when it's kind of like closed they can't lift it up and take it out of the channel because that wood slip the wood strips I put up there make it so you can't lift the the window up enough to be able to get it out of the channel so they can't break into my house that way so then it's a matter of them opening the window enough to rip out the screen and crawl through but I keep a board there all the time and I never take it out so you can only open the window about an inch and a half and that's it so I survive with my windows only being able to open an inch and a half and those wood slits up in fact then one of my neighbors told me that he has had his um, house broken into because they um, lifted the sliding glass window the big you know I have a little balcony and uh, they lifted that off the track so after I heard that, I uh, went out uh, and did the same thing to my sliding glass window, and I opened that up all the, you know, opened the window up, and then I put a wood s strip up there. So now you can't lift the window up to get it out of the track, and uh, so they would just basically, but they could still, if they could open it, I can't. It's on the outside, so I can't. Oh, actually, that's. That's not true. It does actually open on the inside, and I've got a stick, one of my staves, that I can use to make it. It's just the perfect length if I wanted to make it so they can't actually open the window at all. So even if they tried to break the lock or something to open the window, I can actually pin it open with that piece of wood, which I haven't been using when I go outside because I've got these wall units in front of the window, that part of the window, so it's kind of hard to get back there. But if I wanted to be more secure. I could actually use that one more step. I put that thing so you can't slide the window open, and I got the other thing so you can't lift the window up and get it off the track. <sighs> and then I've changed all the locks and the deadbolts, you know, so just in case the previous owner had keys to the doors or anything. So I've, I've made it about as secure as I can here. And, and, and then recently, I actually bought a, I'm going to buy another one. I bought a, um, one of those camera things. So that uh, security cameras, maybe I shouldn't tell you about that. <laughs> but maybe then again, it's good information for you. Hopefully you're listening, you're not going to try to break into my house. But I got a security cameras and uh, I bought two different brands. One brand I liked and one brand I didn't like. So I just sent the other one back um, yesterday or the day before and um, to uh, Amazon to get a refund. And 
I'm going to buy the same one of the one of the brands I really like, so I'm going to buy another one of the other ones. So it's a good thing I brought two different brands, you know, to test them out. So one of them I really like, and it works really well. It's got a good motion sensor. <clears throat> when you start to walk in the room, you don't even get one foot into the room before the camera turns on. It's really sensitive. It really works well. So um, it's kind of a hassle. Then I cover up the camera when I'm home <laughs> so it doesn't keep making videos of me walking around my house. Um the, uh, but, uh, yeah, I've got that, so I'm going to get one more of those for my office. I'll use that in the living room, get one for the office. And I can view it. I've tested it. I can go anywhere uh, and use my um, cellular, I guess, and still be able to see it. It's connected to my Wi-Fi. And then through my cellular, I can see my Wi-Fi, and I can see the videos. I can actually look at the, the camera from wherever I am and see what's going on in my house. And so that's kind of a, just a new thing. I'm just, I'm just getting that in the last month. So, yeah, anyway, I can give you more information on that later, but yeah, maybe you don't care. <laughs> but okay, there you go. Um, in fact, it says right here, oh, like I was saying, uh, um, I, it says here I'm supposed to give you a long way home. So I'm not going to play live flute to that like I was planning on, you know, doing it in my car, playing it on the speaker and then playing along to it. Um, so, but I'll give you that song so you'll get the peace of mind up there. Actually, I know I've got a song for you to enjoy is Black of Night. I don't know, am I going to get three songs? No, I'm just going to give you the, the two. So I'm going to cross that off a long way home. I'm not going to play flute for you. Sorry. There's all kinds of flute videos. You want to see me playing flute. But yeah, I'd like to make more. There was a little, you, there was, I wish there was a demand. I wish somebody would say, hey, I'd like to hear you play flute. Sheesh. Um, so anyway, because I like to perform it. And I, I'm now practicing. In fact, what I, I played flute earlier. What I was doing is I bought a Nordic track, one of the, the $1,000 model. And so I walk on that thing, and then I sing and play my flute while I'm on that. And uh, so, yeah, I was playing the flute to it earlier while I was doing that. And I'm saying, man, I'd really like to perform for somebody, you know, because that would take it up another level. You know, I don't feel as inspired to just sit there and play along for myself. I mean, I do get inspired, but... I was trying to imagine playing for somebody else. And so if there really was somebody else, then I would be playing for them. And I really like playing for girls especially. So, And especially on the flute. I've always, when I was playing live, doing the poetry readings, girls would always come up after the things. You know, didn't get that. I mean, I get maybe some compliments from the guys, but girls really like my flute playing. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, be like to be the Pied Piper on the flute there. So, yeah, I wish I could figure out a way to get out there in front of some audiences and jam and play flute again. All right, this is Richard Dell. Well, actually, who am I now? This is the history of American Zen. I'm the hippie coyote. <laughs> the hippie coyote of American Zen telling you the story. Well, I could be the record producer, Richard Del Cotter, too. But um, I'm both characters. It's just a matter of whether I'm doing the business and the production or whether I'm, I'm in doing the music, being the musician, and then I'm the hippie coyote. In fact, right now, I've got to go in there, and I'll be the Richard Del Connor, the producer. And I've, I've just, tonight, uh, I've just started for the first time. i got a couple other podcasts. i got eight of these. This is the number eight. I'm editing them in Logic Pro. The, up till now, I've just been kind of like finishing them and slamming them on the Internet without any editing or, you know, anything at all. So I've decided, okay, i got to take it up a notch because i got to learn how to use Logic Pro. So only today, tonight, have I started using Logic Pro, and I'll start editing these videos just a little bit and start experimenting with the compression. So you're going to hear these things evolve, and they're going to improve in quality as I go along these podcasts now because I'm forcing myself to edit them now more so I can get more practice. All right. See you. I turn away 
Stop. 